Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Welcome, everybody. I'm super excited to have you here to kick off uh, the debut um, episode and the part one of a seven-part series on how to successfully litigate a personal injury case. Um, this is a live webinar, uh, and each of these will be a live webinar. And what's going to happen is it's a seven-part series, and uh, it's going to be the first Wednesday of every month uh, going until uh, July. That'll be when we hit to the seventh part. So mark your calendars now. First Wednesday of every month, it will be a live webinar in this format uh, for an hour from one to two with one CLE credit. Uh, this is a program that's being done in coordination with a podcast that I'm the uh, host of called The Mentor ESQ. So the podcast is being recorded uh, now during the live webinar and will be available uh, pretty much forever online as an audio episode uh, that can be listened to as well. So if you're listening to this uh, as, as a podcast episode, you missed the live webinar, but maybe there's still time to check out the next one. So let me give you a little overview of what this series is about uh, before we get into it. Um, I felt that it would be a great idea to sort of go through in a bit of a granular fashion um, the steps from very first moment you get an inquiry about a case um, through handling a plaintiff's personal injury case all the way until uh, you get through a verdict and a judgment, a post-trial hearings, and an appeal. So by the time the series is done, um, you'll have basically shadowed me in my playbook uh, that has been developed over many, many, many years um, from the very start all the way through to the end of the case. Uh, obviously, just seven parts seven hours. There's only so much we can get into uh, with each hour, but I'll try my best to cover the important parts. Uh, and there will always be the opportunity for more specific um, CLEs that are here on the Academy website that are available on my podcast, you know, a specific on cross-examination or a specific on um, opening statements that I can't do as part of a, a whole hour with other things. Um, this is a plaintiff of uh, point of view. That's uh, the type of practice I have. Uh, and I'm very well aware that a lot of you listening are not plaintiff's lawyers uh, with defense firms or carriers. Uh, but I think it'll be great for you to see sort of insight into the other side. Uh, and it'll help you defend cases better. I'm also open to taking questions uh, on the defense side of how I would handle something or how I have seen uh, my adversaries on the defense side handle something and my thoughts on that. So feel free to ask away. As Michelle said in the Q&A box, uh, put your questions in there. I will certainly do a full Q&A for as long as anybody wants to stay on uh, at two o'clock. But when there's a short break and Michelle's reading the code or there's another sponsor break, I'll take a quick look and I'll try and answer uh, some of the questions if I can uh, during the program uh, as we go on. So um, sit back, enjoy. Uh, I know there's a lot of different levels of experience uh, attending the webinar and listening to the podcast from new lawyers to uh, very experienced lawyers. So like I always say in my CLEs, you know, if you take just one thing out of this that, oh, that's a good idea. I've never done that. Or, oh, maybe I'll try that. Um, 
then it's worthwhile. Just an hour out of your time, you'll get a CLE credit, whether it's this live webinar or also if you're listening to the podcast, uh, you can uh, follow the link and get the CLE credit that way as well. So what we're going to do in this very first part is we're going to talk about starting it off, getting the case, doing that initial investigation, getting your file ready uh, until um, it's either going to be settled or you're ready to get that complaint going and filed and, and off and running. Uh, just as a little uh, preview, the next uh, part, part two, that will happen a month from now, uh, we'll talk about early settlement, what's involved in that, and then the issues that go into commencing the proceeding, jurisdiction, venue, uh, actually going through the filing, the process service. So it's really, this series will hopefully be a reference guide that you can always refer back to as well, or hop into throughout the seven part series for a specific, a specific part of a case uh, that you're working on and maybe wanna just get some fresh ideas. So let's start now with, uh, the very first client interaction. Um, if you've handled plaintiff's work before, you know there's always that first call, someone feeling you out about uh, whether or not they're gonna retain you, or that first meeting, uh, hard to have in person these days, but maybe by Zoom, or by email. However the communication starts, that very first interaction with a potential new client is crucial, crucial. It's crucial not only to uh, setting the uh, expectations of the client, uh, it's crucial not only in establishing a rapport uh, with a potential client, but also for you as a lawyer and on behalf of your law firm to set, set forth your credibility because you never want something you say in an initial meeting to come back and bite you uh, later on. Uh, you don't wanna say things just to get the case is what I'm referring to. Uh, you don't wanna say things that are not true because you're anxious that you've gotta come up with something to, to get the case. Um, so what you need to do when you have that very first interaction and what I always do, very first thing is ask if the person has any questions at the outset. A lot of people contact you and uh, just be curious about a few things. They won't know much of what's involved or what lay ahead. Uh, and so first see if anyone has any questions and say to them, do you have questions? Uh, if not, I'm happy to tell you about myself, about my firm. Uh, and if you'd like, I can share that with you. And I'd also like to go over sort of the process. And if you retain us, what would be involved? Uh, and that's a great way to start because people want to know why they should hire you, uh, especially if they're what we call lawyer shopping, interviewing other firms. Why should they hire you? And, uh, and then you should let them know what to expect from you. So it gives them an overview. They really have a sense by the time you speak with them that if they retain you, this is how the case is going to go. And it's, a, and it's a good way to start. So I, when I meet with a new client after answering some initial questions, um, I'll talk about my firm. I'll talk about what I do, our practice, and what I think makes us different from perhaps other firms uh, and why they might want to work with us. I'll give you a, a, just one example is we're a very small firm with a very small volume of cases. Uh, and we, we think there are benefits to that. And I explained that in the conversation. But I also say to the person, if you'd like to go with a larger firm and feel a bigger firm and more lawyers and more of a staff, if that's what you're looking for, then we're just not the right fit. It's okay to put that out there. Don't be too nervous about saying something that may not help you get the case. As long as it's honest, you want to be frank and credible. Uh, 
So whatever it is about you, your practice, your area of expertise, uh, any way that you find that you can connect with that potential client, you should talk about. Um, then let them know um, what the representation will involve, what the first steps are, and an overview of sort of how the litigation process works. I like to tell potential clients that if you retain us, um, here's what's immediately going to happen. I also like to explain to them what's involved in retaining us. And I talk about a retainer agreement and a HIPAA authorization as the key documents they need to sign. And then I tell them about the letters that we're going to send out right away and what we're going to get going, what we're going to get uh, underway for them when we open the file, when they're gonna be hearing from us, uh, I'll tell them that uh, they're gonna get a welcome letter. I'll tell them that we're gonna get claim letters out. We're gonna request medical records. I'll tell them they can expect to hear further from me or my associate or paralegal to do a full intake of their case. And then I sort of lay out how litigation works, that once we get all the records, there's a possibility of settlement. If not, uh, the factors of whether or not we're gonna commence a litigation and where and how that works. And I walk them all the way through from the time frame of filing a lawsuit to when we expect an answer to be interposed to filing for a preliminary conference. I talk a little bit about discovery, how long that takes, what's involved. Uh, it's important to let clients know on the defense and the plaintiff side of what their actual involvement's gonna be. I tell plaintiffs that, listen, you know, you don't have that much involvement. You just need to be in contact with us, respond to our request for information, but you'll be deposed. And I tell them about an IME and I say, unless it goes to trial, that'll basically be it. Otherwise the work's on us. You just need to be available when we need to speak with you or get information. Uh, they like to hear that. We tell them we'll prepare them before a deposition, not to worry and we'll be in touch. Uh, we talk about when a reasonable expectation of a trial date will be. People getting involved in litigation want to know what they're getting themselves into. So the more you can share with them at the outset, the better. You're informing them. And in general, I find the most important thing uh, as a lawyer and in establishing credibility uh, with your clients is to inform them. That'll be something I will reiterate through this series. Inform them about what's going on in their case. Inform them about the steps in the case. Inform them about the pros and cons of their case. Uh, tell them you're not going to sugarcoat things. Many times lawyers are afraid that they're not going to get a case in this initial meeting uh, if they talk about the negatives. Um, and you may not get a case if you talk about potential problems. And that's a decision you'll have to make. The philosophy in my firm is if they're going to have problems ahead in the case, you tell them, say, listen, I think there's going to be a problem here or there. This is how we're going to attempt to get around it, manage it. Um, but I just want to let you know right now that, you know, I want to make sure your expectations are reasonable. It's important to do that. Um, many people want to know how to handle a situation when a potential client asks you about the value of the case. They basically want to know what we think we're going to get for them. If they're gonna retain you or your firm, uh, what can they expect? How much money are they gonna get? And I strongly encourage you never to give a number ever because there's no way you can know at the outset of a case and that you tell them, listen, I can't really give you a number because we just haven't gotten underway with discovery. We haven't seen medical records. We haven't done depositions. We haven't seen a lot, uh, depending how you recover. 
uh, how you heal, how these procedures go. These all play into the value of your case, whether we settle early or later at trial. So, you know, the farthest I like to go is saying that if it's a big case, look, this is definitely a substantial case. If it's a seven figure case, I may say this could potentially be a seven figure case or a six figure case or however you wanna phrase it, but give yourself an out. I had uh, problems a long time ago when a lawyer previously with my firm, in order to get cases unbeknownst to me, uh, would say, I think your case is worth X dollars. And then the case worked its way up and I'm getting ready for trial and I'm speaking with the client and telling them my thoughts on settlement values. And they say, oh, but you're the lawyer that I first met with who signed up the case told me my case is worth X and this is less than that. You never wanna have that problem. So it's important that you reasonably handle expectations and inform the client from the very first meeting. Um, then hopefully you get the case. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. You can't take it personally. Uh, all you can do is feel good about putting yourself forward, explaining the best you can about yourself, what you bring to the table, and uh, hope that you get the case. Uh, otherwise, it's really out of your hands. Uh, and don't take it personally. Uh, it stinks when you lose out on a potential good case to another firm, uh, but you know, it's going to happen and it's not necessarily a reflection on you. It can happen for many reasons. So don't try not to take it personally. All right. So now let's get into um, opening up the file uh, and getting things started. And what I've done with the materials uh, for this series, what I'm going to try and do throughout the series is give practical materials, uh, not stuff for you to read. You can go online and read, but what I've attached here, you'll find in the packet is a retainer, a sample retainer, negligence retainer, a sample HIPAA authorization, sample claim letters, sample FOIL request letters, a sample welcome letter, and you can copy and paste and use these uh, and modify these documents as you see fit uh, to sort of help kick off the case. And I thought that might be helpful. So if you are uh, on the webinar, you've gotten the materials. If you're listening to the podcast, uh, just shoot me an email at Andrew at the mentor ESQ. Uh, and again, you'll have my contact information in the podcast description and I'll email you these materials so you have them. But the very first thing is gonna be the retainer agreement. And you're gonna to wanna to explain in the first conversation generally what the retainer agreement is. Uh, you're gonna say that it does two things. First, it officially authorizes me and my firm to represent you. And secondly, it sets forth the fee arrangement. You can generally talk about it. They may ask to see it in advance. That's fine too. They wanna to read it, think it over, uh, provide it to them. Make sure they look at it, see if they have any questions. Uh, and explain to them that once they sign that, uh, they'll have the opportunity to send it back and, uh, and that'll allow you to get the file opened and going, but you need that retainer back. Um, in New York State, in a regular negligence retainer, you have to give them two options, option one and option two regarding uh, who's laying out the expenses. So you wanna explain that to them. Uh, that is a requirement. If you don't have that in your retainer agreement, you have to put that in, in New York State. You can copy it uh, right from the sample that I gave you. Uh, in a medical malpractice retainer in New York, it's still a sliding scale and you don't give those options. So it's just a negligence one-third retainer. So take a look at the sample and make sure you go over that with them. Uh, we've been emailing retainers during the pandemic to clients. They can sign it and send it back. Digital signatures are fine. 
Uh, retainer agreements do not need to be notarized. It's not a requirement, but it's always good to get it if you can. Uh, it's always good to have a witness, even if it's a friend of theirs or a family member sign it, that's good. And they can email that back to you and uh, send them with the retainer agreement, a HIPAA authorization uh, that we always send out. Those are the first two things we'll send to a new case, uh, retainer agreement and a HIPAA authorization. Explain to them that they need to sign the HIPAA authorization, maybe print out multiple of them uh, and sign and mail back to you. So far, we've been lucky with uh, digital signatures are being fine. Uh, none of the doctors or hospitals are giving us a hard time about um, whether it's a, what we call wet signature or actual hard original. Usually email copies are fine, PDFs are fine. Um, we use DocuSign a lot for the retainers and the HIPAA uh, authorizations that we send to our clients. Sometimes you run into an issue with a HIPAA authorization that's a DocuSign signature, which amazes me because that's actually more verified. Um, so just be aware of that. Uh, but send that out, explain to your potential client what the HIPAA form is, that you're going to use it to get their medical records. It's important that you get all that stuff right away. Uh, and those are the two things you say, I'm going to get it out to you. Once you get these documents back to me by email, we're opening your case and we are off and running. And it's important you get them back to us quickly because there are things we need to do quickly to protect your rights. Uh, we need to get an investigation going quickly for you uh, to make sure we can get uh, witness statements, uh, video surveillance, um, to find out information uh, while it's there, to do preservation letters. Uh, it's also important that we uh, file timely notices of claim, that we uh, file no-fault forms, letters of representation. So a lot of times people want to know, how soon do I need to get back to you? And you want to tell them as soon as possible because your case will benefit uh, from hearing from us as soon as possible. Um, tell them not to date the HIPAA authorizations. They go stale after six months, I believe. So uh, good practice is they can sign it and you can date the HIPAA authorizations when you exchange it. That way you can make copies and you don't have to keep bothering them for HIPAA authorizations. Um, and then let the client know that once they send back the retainer agreement signed and the HIPAA authorization, you're going to do a full intake of their case and open the file. Now in our office, what we will do is we will have uh, in the old days, they'd be there in person and sit down with the lawyer at the time or a paralegal or both. We'd fill out our form that we use to do an intake. Uh, these days, uh, either the lawyer or a paralegal in my firm uh, will call them up. We'll say, all right, when's a good time to do an intake? And we have our list of questions uh, that we go through and we fill it out. Um, everyone has different intake systems. Some people use it on the computer. Uh, some do it uh, handwritten. Uh, whatever you use, it's important that you get the pedigree information, dates of birth, a social security number, uh, whether they have a spouse and their information, children, their dates of birth, that information, employment information, uh, whether there's going to be a loss of earnings claim. Uh, if you need help with an intake, uh, contact me separately and, uh, and I can help you. Most people sort of craft their own intake systems, but it's important you get all of that for your file right at the outset. In addition to doing an intake, you're going to want to send them a welcome letter, some type of acknowledgement that this is to confirm you've retained us, we're on the case, uh, we're going to be working hard for you, uh, and uh, we're going to copy you on everything we do so that you will be aware. I have a sample, real simple welcome letter in the materials that you can customize as you want. Um, a lot of people like to put in their welcome letters uh, some tips and some guidance, some overview to the client, such as reminder, 
don't post anything on social media because now that you're in litigation, uh, they, the defense and the insurance will have the right to see your social media. So it's best not to post anything uh, personal or about your injuries or recovery or your activities on social media. Uh, you may tell them uh, not to speak with anybody, reaching out to them for a statement to direct them to you. Um, however you wanna craft it, you want that letter in writing. It establishes an actual connection uh, between you and the client and your representation in addition to the retainer agreement. It's good to let the client know how you plan to keep them informed and communicate with them on the case. I recommend this whether you're plaintiff's lawyer, defense lawyer, or whether you practice in any type of uh, specialty area, not personal injury, uh, that you copy your client on all correspondence. What I believe you'll see in the materials that I attached, whenever there's a letter at the bottom left of the letter, there's a CC, uh, which means, you know, courtesy copy. Um, and the CC, you always want to put your client on the bottom of that. And what my firm does as a, as a practice is whenever we generate correspondence uh, to an insurance company for a claim letter or to a doctor's office for medical records, whatever it is, we CC the client and then we email them a copy of it. We used to mail it out, but everyone's pretty cool with email now and trying to be paperless. So we email them. We say, just want you to see attached a correspondence we sent out on your behalf today. And clients love it because it keeps them informed. Uh, they don't need to call you. They know you're working on their case. Uh, you're not going to get a call from the client. Hey, have you been doing anything on my case uh, when you have and uh, them not knowing about it? So uh, let them know at the outset, hey, if it's all right, we're going to send you copies of everything we do. Uh, maybe make an email folder or a folder on your computer that you could save everything in uh, so that we send it all to you. Uh, we'll ask referring attorneys often if they would like copies of certain items or correspondence or pleadings, and we'll send them courtesy copies as well. It's just a really nice way to keep those lines of communication going. Speaking of communication, I think it's really important that you let the client know um, how they can stay in touch with you and communicate with you. I tell all of my clients, here's my cell phone, uh, here's my email, here's my office number. We have a 24-hour service. Uh, I will get back to you every day within 24 hours. Uh, just leave me a message. Um, however you want to, uh, to communicate with your client, let them know you're available. And if you're not going to be there, that you have someone from your office, whether it's an associate or a paralegal or receptionist who will get back to them just to say, we got your message. Andrew wanted me to let you know he was stuck in a deposition all day tomorrow. He'll give you a ring tomorrow morning. Really important that you establish that level of communication at the outset. Uh, I'm going to take a break for a moment. And let Michelle do her thing. If you are watching or listening via podcast, you need an attendance verification code to get credit. That code is PIC634. That's PIC as in personal injury case 634. Back to you, Andrew. Great. Thank you, Michelle. And um, I saw some questions that I'm going to try and just touch on quickly now. If I don't answer your question, I'll get it uh, after the two o'clock hour because my time is going to run out pretty fast. And I have so much that I want to talk with you about uh, in this first part. Um, by the way, people worrying about the code again, um, that is just for the audio podcast listeners. So if you're on this webinar typing that in, don't worry about the audio code, but I'll make sure Michelle 
uh, gives the audio code again when we get on there. Um, so a couple quick things I want to respond to just because they're timely in what we're talking about. Uh, getting medical records. Uh, the HIPAA form that I gave you, tell the client to leave everything blank, uh, just sign it. You can fill in their name, their social, when you get it. Um, you can uh, put in the provider, the firm, your firm to send it to. Uh, some people have asked that they get letters from the defense saying the hospital rejected it uh, because they require the box to check off about revealing HIV information. Um, you can have them, as a matter of course, check that all the time. Uh, sometimes that opens up a whole different door that you don't want to have to open with them when it's not necessary. What we'll often do is if it gets bounced uh, for that reason, you know, we do know, I think a lot of the city hospitals require that. And if we, it's just, we know that, we'll ask in advance. Otherwise, you can just tell them at the outset, ask for their permission to check that off uh, on their behalf if need be uh, to make sure that uh, the form can be submitted. Uh, I do not recommend sending any HIPAA forms in on behalf of someone to get records unless you have been retained. Unless you have been retained, you should not be really spending any money on a case. You should not be working on a case. Um, we will tell clients, we put the onus on them to get their medical records uh, unless it's a case we're willing to take right away. Uh, this will often happen in the medical malpractice uh, claims phase where they want us to review records. Uh, we won't send money for those records. We'll ask them to get those records for us to review, which we don't charge to review, and then we would take it on from there. I can talk more about getting medical records uh, after the, uh, the two o'clock hour. Uh, yes, New York State can charge 75 cents per page. Um, it is cheaper if clients get it. They usually don't charge the clients directly. So, you know, you can play that as it goes if you want to take it on or have the client. I usually like to have control of a situation and I'll pay for it. Uh, there's a whole lecture on getting medical records that the Academy has done where if you request big hospital charts on CDs or DVDs, they can't charge you a fortune. They have to limit it to a couple bucks for the disc, which is great. Uh, there's different acts that can be cited. It's a whole nother program. So look for that, but there are ways to get in, uh, away from those expensive fees. Um, retainer statements, uh, good question. Yes, you need to file an OCA retainer statement once you are retained. Fortunately, um, the OCA during the pandemic changed to allow us to do it online, closing and retainer statements. Uh, you don't have to mail in that postcard that we used to do with a return uh, stamp to get sent back to with the number. You can get retainer statement numbers right away. If you have a referring attorney, uh, you wanna do it by the book and have them sign a retainer agreement and file it and put their number on your retainer statement. You do have to file a closing statement when the money is all dispersed with OCA and a copy of the closing statement needs to be sent to the client. But that'll probably come up in like part six of the case or part seven. Uh, but just to address that now, um, if you are handling an SUM or UM, which stands for Supplemental Underinsured Motorist Claim or Under or Uninsured Motorist Claim, uh, then your retainer will cover that as well. Uh, you don't need two separate retainers. Uh, and you can use one closing statement for both aspects of the case. Again, SUM is something you want to explore with the client. We're going to talk about that in just a moment in investigation. I'm just trying to quickly look at some of the other questions. You can get power of attorney forms to request medical records. Again, that's a whole nother thing. Representing a minor, uh, you need to have their parent or natural guardian uh, retain you. If they're under the age of 18, they cannot retain you. So you want their parent to retain you. Uh, and otherwise, you do everything else the same until they turn 18. Uh, 
let's see. Uh, sending with copies of papers. Uh, question came about email. What I like to do is when I email correspondents, I will BCC my client so that the insurance carrier uh, or defense attorney or firm or whoever is on that, uh, I'm not giving up my client's personal email address. So just BCC your client, uh, unless there's some reason that your client needs to be on there. Um, all right, so those are what I'm gonna answer now. I'll get to the rest a little later on. I wanna talk about um, the initial investigation. And um, before I get to that, because it's sort of part of it and intertwined, is when you send out these letters that I put in my packet, uh, the welcome letter, the, the claim letters, you want to do that within 24 hours of having your case signed up, unless there's a problem getting identifying information. You want to work quickly for many reasons. You want to show the client you're on the case. You want to show um, a firm that may take over the file, that you weren't sitting on it, that you were doing your job and you're entitled to your claim of whatever share of the fee you may be asking for if the file gets taken over. Um, things can get lost, destroyed. You want to put everybody on notice that there's a claim and that this person has an attorney and you're on it. So you know, claim letters you have in this packet of materials is to the bodily injury adjuster in an automobile case that you represent them and you want the policy limits. They're not going to give it to you on the phone without that letter. Uh, you'll send a letter to the no-fault adjuster, ask for the no-fault forms to be sent to you. Uh, if you believe there's an SUM claim, you want to send a notice of an SUM claim to the SUM carrier. All those need to get out right away, putting everybody on notice. Um, if uh, you believe that the potential tortfeasor is a, let's say they own a building, it's a managing agent, there might be video footage uh, of the premises, you'll send a claim letter and a preservation letter, not only putting them on notice of a claim and that you represent uh, the client, but uh, to the extent there's any videos or photos or audio recordings, uh, you're hereby directing that they preserve those uh, for, the, uh, for the foreseeable future until further word from you. That puts them on notice. So if they get rid of the video footage um, after that letter, there's gonna, that's gonna give you the basis for a spoliation uh, charge later on. Um, so you're going to want to send for all this. If you don't have a police report, the client hasn't provided you with one. You're going to want to get that right away. You're going to send for it. Uh, and this is what you want to do when we now get into what I'm going to talk about, the initial investigation, uh, the second part. we got about 20 minutes left here. So we're going to talk about the investigation for a moment. Uh, you need to have an investigator. If you don't have a person available to be your investigator, uh, there are many firms out there that do investigative work. Some of them are Academy sponsors. Uh, you can reach out to me. Uh, I'm always happy, by the way, to share my resources. As most of you probably know, I'm pretty generous with my time and my resources. I enjoy doing this. I enjoy making us a better profession and better lawyers. And I find that by uh, being free and sharing information that I have, uh, that helps the cause. So um, reach out to me uh, anytime if I can help with anything and um, I can get you some investigator information. But you need to have an investigator or investigative firm. Someone you could email or call right when that case is intake is, uh, is brought in, the files open and say, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Investigator, here's what I need. I need a police report. I need you to submit FOIL requests for X, Y, and Z. I need you to scan for video footage of, um, of the area, of the scene of the accident. Uh, it was at this intersection, it was an automobile accident. 
find me video camera footage. And the investigators will go out and they go from building to building to building. They knock on doors, they look for cameras. Uh, and in New York City, you'd be amazed. We get a lot of video footage and it makes a huge difference. I've had cases where the police report says one thing and a witness says one thing and the carrier's taking a no pay. And then uh, you get the video and it shows a whole different story. Uh, you send that over and things change. So always search for video. A lot of these videos are on reels and get taped over in a building after 30 days or a couple of weeks. So you want to get in there ASAP. Um, if it's a, a premise where an accident happened, like uh, inside a lobby of a building, um, outside uh, the entry to a building, inside a bar where something may have happened, and you believe there's video footage, see if you can get it. Uh, Many times they won't release it to you, but at least see if you can identify if it's there, get that preservation letter out. An investigator will do that for you. Uh, if you have a police report uh, and or your investigator gets the police report and there's witnesses on the report, those are known as blotter witnesses, um, have that investigator go get those statements right away. When you give the report to the investigator and you're saying canvas for video, get me witness statements, um, that's what a good investigator does. Uh, and that's what makes you a better lawyer and a better advocate. You're going to get all this investigation early. The earlier, the better. So get your investigators going. Uh, I like to do my own investigation of a potential defendant. Uh, when it's an auto case, I like to look up uh, the vehicle, uh, see what it is, see whether it's a late model, uh, see what we think there may be in coverage or assets. You can do great things with Google these days. You type in the address of the tortfeasor's registration and um, go on Google Maps, see if they have a huge house or if they live in a tenement somewhere. Uh, and that'll give you a good idea on whether it's going to be a, a minimum policy or whether there's assets that may be recoverable. If you have a, com uh, a commercial defendant, a corporation, uh, look further, a secretary of state, where they're authorized to transact business, look for websites. Uh, look for social media posts, Google them. You always want to find out as much as you can about a potential defendant in a case uh, early on. So I recommend that you do that. The more you know early on in a case, the better. Uh, I want to talk about medical malpractice investigation right now. Uh, my firm handles a decent amount of medical malpractice uh, litigation. And we heavily screen uh, cases. Uh, you'll find most people that have uh, any uh, substantial part of their practice doing medical malpractice uh, will very carefully and seriously screen a case before even sending a claim letter. Uh, you want to get all the records. You want to look through them yourself. You want to have your, the appropriate experts look through them. So that's the investigation you need to do in a medical malpractice cases, a case. Um, medical malpractice cases are much more difficult, uh, much more complex. You have to invest the time, the money, the experts uh, to look through everything. And that's the investigation you have to do early on in a case uh, is to see if it is a case. I have a case pending right now against two major New York City hospitals that I spent probably six or seven months in the investigation phase uh, before uh, drafting the complaint uh, because there were so many different areas and I spent a lot of money. I retained a lot of medical experts in different areas to look at the records uh, in different ways to see if there's something there uh, so that when the time came to file the complaint or to send a claim letter, you're able to lay stuff out based on your research uh, and really spell things out appropriately to put them on notice, to show that you're for real, uh, that uh, you, you've done your homework. And, you, you know, if you're the type
type of person that sends a letter out uh, saying, oh, maybe uh, they'll come talk to us uh, and talk settlement if I just send a claim letter. Uh, that does not happen in the medical malpractice world. I have to tell uh, potential clients that a lot. I say, yeah, you're saying it's not a case, but what do we, but can't you just send them a letter? They'll probably, they don't want to get dragged into court. Um, that just doesn't happen in the medical malpractice world. Uh, if it does, it's rare. Um, so you really need to do your investigation uh, if there's a potential medical malpractice case. Um, you need to investigate all the time frames involved. Make sure you record the statute of limitations applicable. If it's a municipality, you have to record that it's 90 days from the date of accident uh, for notices of claim. A year and 90 days, med mal in New York, uh, statute of limitations, two years and six months. Uh, otherwise, you're looking generally at three years. Always want to have a system for recording the statute of limitations. That should be part of your investigation. Medical malpractice, there may be continuing treatment. You're going to want to look and find those dates. You're going to want to record those dates and have a, a tickler system. Uh, we have in our firm what's called a hot book. Uh, and uh, every month, uh, that uh, statute uh, is about to expire the following month. It's listed in the hot book. We, we sit as a firm and go through it and make sure that, uh, that it's either been resolved or it's in suit or dealt with somehow. So medical malpractice, do your investigation. It's going to take longer and more money, uh, but it's required because you're also going to have to uh, submit a certificate of merit come the time of filing. We'll talk about that in the next part. Um, investigation and product liability cases. Um, we also handle product liability cases and you need the product for the most part. Um, if someone wants you to look into a product liability case and you don't have access, they don't have that product or you don't have the ability to get it, um, that's going to be a problem. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that for the moment. So what you want to do if there's a potential product liability case is do your investigation into where that product is. Does your client have it? Uh, is it a vehicle that's maybe at an impound yard? Uh, is it a big item that was returned or that the insurance company took hold of? Is it a consumer item uh, like a workout piece of equipment that uh, caused an injury and broke that's sitting in the client's home? Uh, you need to make that part of your investigation before you start sending out claim letters uh, and thinking about drafting a complaint. You need to get the product. Uh, you need to do homework on that product. Do some Google searches. Has it been recalled? Are there other lawsuits uh, involving that product? You can find out a lot of information and you need to find all of that out before you start down the road of sending claim letters and um, potentially drafting a complaint. Um, you wanna retain the appropriate experts uh, early on in a product liability case uh, to, you know, run it by them, see what they think. Uh, find out if you potentially have a case, again, before you start sending claim letters or uh, start drafting the complaint. So we've talked about product liability, medical malpractice, um, auto cases. You always want to get that investigation going fast, get it going right away. Uh, it's going to be key to being prepared to informing your client on what you're finding out. It'll show the client that you're doing a great job of finding out information. A lot of times we're just doing a fact finding situation. Sometimes people just want answers and uh, we get them for, for them. That's part of our job as advocates and attorneys and counselors. So do your investigation into it before you start running off uh, half cock, so to speak, uh, without really an idea of what the claim would really be and what the damages potentially could be. You got to get your ducks in a row uh, before you, you get to that next step. Um, you're going to send out for medical records. And um, 
you're going to want to do that right away. As part of the intake process, you're going to get all the medical care provider information. You need to tell your client, let me know. You're part of your duty. I told you, you don't have to do much, but keep me informed. Let me know every time you go see a doctor or a physical therapist or go for an MRI um, so that we can send for the records. Explain that you can't get records from a hospital until they're discharged. You can't get records from a doctor until after they've seen the, the doctor or the, the practice that they go to. And so you're always sending for follow-ups. You're getting records. It's not until you have the records that you can really assess the damages of the case. It's not until you have the medical records that you can exchange them with the insurance company uh, or the defense counsel uh, to potentially get into early settlement talks. The very first thing uh, you know uh, if you're a claims adjuster, a defense lawyer, and you probably know if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, but the very first thing you're going to get in response to your claim letter is a call from the insurance representative assigned to the case asking for some details about the case and uh, about the injuries and uh, wanting uh, to get some records to look at. Um, so it's not going to do you any, any favors to try and engage in any significant calls. You have to get those records and you have to give them to the carrier and to your adversary. Don't hold back on this stuff. Uh, you have any intentions of getting your case resolved, you need to work with your adversary. We'll talk about that uh, soon in, in the series about how to work with adversaries in order to get your case resolved. So get on those medical records. Um, you can send for them yourself. I gave some sample letters in the materials, or you can use a service uh, that can uh, get the records for you. But get them, uh, keep track of when you send for them, when you receive them, organize how you save them. Uh, everyone should be saving these things by PDFs, getting their computers organized and their servers organized. Uh, so it's easy to access all of that. Uh, because then once you have all the medical records, once you have that initial investigation back, that's when you're in a position to really assess the case. That's when you call up your colleagues or uh, your, your, your associate or partner from the other office, whether you're on the plaintiff or defense side. And that's when you say, all right, let's look. I've, I've assessed the medicals. I've assessed, assessed the liability. What do you think of this case? What do you think of the liability? What do you think of the damages? It's important you have that conversation. If you're a solo practitioner and you don't have anyone to talk to, uh, to run that by, call me up. I love to speak with all of you. I love to workshop cases. I love to make contacts and partners and connect with other lawyers, partner up on cases, refer back and forth. You know, it's, uh, it's part of the whole interactive nature of our profession. And so feel free to reach out to me if you don't have anybody. Otherwise, reach out to somebody. Get their thoughts on values, get their thoughts on early settlement, because you'd be surprised. You might be able to get cases resolved for decent value early on. And that makes you look good. It makes the client look, look good. Um, so it's, it's, it's something that you want to really posture yourself for. And then you'll get to that moment where you'll say, all right, I think we can settle this case. Or... Um, I don't think this case is going to settle early for whatever reason. The, the adjuster is just not returning my phone calls. They keep saying they need a few more weeks. Um, or they may say, yeah, I want to settle this case. They put an offer out. Uh, they may want to mediate. And then you know there's a chance you could settle it. Um, you may want to discuss alternative dispute resolution early with your adversary, whether you're plaintiff or defendant, especially during these crazy pandemic times with no trials coming up. Um, I've been talking a lot. I just got a litigation pre-answer. Uh, the parties to agree to go into a binding private arbitration with a high-low. I mean, you know, think outside the box, folks. Uh, these are all the things you want to start doing pretty early on. Um, and then if it looks like you're going nowhere, uh, but you believe in your case, you believe in the investigation, 
you believe in the value and the merit and the client, um, then you're ready to draft the complaint. And that's where we're going to pick up in our next session uh, in part two of this series, where we're going to talk about early settlement, jurisdiction, venue, and commencing the lawsuit. So hopefully, um, you know, this first meeting we had today uh, to chat about, um, you know, how to successfully litigate a personal injury case gave you some food for thought, some ideas of what maybe um, you're doing already. Good for you. Uh, maybe you could do something a little better. Maybe you've never even handled a case before. And this gives you a really nice um, outline to follow, uh, to reference when you're starting a case to sort of check in, make sure you're staying on point um, with what you're doing. So, um, I'm going to sort of stop right there as far as what I want to talk about to leave a little bit of time uh, for Michelle uh, to do the second code and then to maybe start addressing, I know there's a lot of questions, start addressing some of these uh, uh, if there's time left within the next five or six minutes and then happy to stay on to answer questions afterwards. There's a lot of great questions here. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get into in depth with all of them uh, because, uh, you know, I could create some uh, separate uh, episodes just uh, on this for webinars, uh, some of the questions. Um, just speaking of that, Michelle briefly mentioned uh, the Mentor ESQ uh, podcast. Uh, I know a lot of you are listening or uh, attending this webinar because uh, you've listened. We're in the second uh, season of it. What the podcast is, I'm the host of it, and it's a mix of interviews with interesting lawyers and uh, basically CLE type um, lectures where I go into in detailed uh, depth uh, for about 45 minutes or so on specific topics that you can also get CLE credit for. So you could just go to the mentoresq.com site to see sort of the, the list of what's there. Um, and the interviews are, I find to be really interesting. I like interesting people. As lawyers, we all have interesting stories. I did interview a few weeks ago in the last episode, uh, the assistant, uh, the, the district attorney uh, for Kings County, uh, Eric Gonzalez. And the episode before that, I interviewed um, um, Cliff Aaron, who's a partner at London Fisher, defense attorney. And if you know him, he's a remarkable man. Uh, after already being active as a top defense trial attorney, trying cases all over the country, uh, he lost his sight as an adult. And now he continues to try cases around the country effectively. And so we talked a lot about what went on with him. So just want to let you know that if you're curious, I encourage you to check that out and you can get some more detailed information on these CLE type topics of how to handle these cases. Um, now, I see questions about the OCA statement. Just go online to OCA, Google it. Uh, you just file it online. You don't have to do anything else with that for the OCA statements. I see questions about FOIL requests. Uh, do we actually get responses from the city or the transit authority? Uh, believe it or not, you do. Um, you just, the key is getting it to the right place. I have found investigators are sometimes a little better in submitting FOIL requests because they can be a little more dogged in following up and getting it into the hands of the right people. Uh, but yeah, we get FOIL responses from the city, from the transit authority, from the MTA, uh, from DOT. FOIL is a very good thing to uh, do, uh, to submit, to get information, especially in products liability cases. You can submit a request to the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And uh, again, you have to, you know, keep on them and keep at it. But you can get some really great stuff. And we've uh, broken through and really made cases based on things we've gotten from FOIL. So I encourage you to explore that. Um, if it's a minor who's uh, been retained through an adult, when that minor turns 18, yes, you should have them sign a new retainer with you because now they are an adult. Uh, so have them sign that. 
Uh, if you have a case involving an infant compromise order, even if someone asks where it's a $25,000 policy limit that's being tendered quickly, maybe even without a lawsuit, unfortunately, there is no shortcut to getting that compromise order. You will have to get an index number. Uh, you will have to submit it through motion support, have the hearing, uh, and do it that way. I recommend those of you, if you are handling an infant's case, uh, if you can, that you should uh, waive your expenses. Uh, it looks good to do that when you have a minor as a client and you're most li more likely than not to get your full third because it is in the discretion of the uh, judge who's reviewing your petition for the infant compromise to cut your fee. Uh, sometimes they'll cut it from a third to 25%. Uh, hopefully they won't, but one way to try and avoid that is to voluntarily waive your expenses and then ask for a full third. Uh, there's a question if we have them, uh, have our clients sign a retainer before we review meds and conduct an investigation? I think I answered that. You generally want a client to sign a retainer before you're gonna work on the case. You generally do. Um, you don't wanna work for free. You especially don't wanna spend a lot of time working if they're interviewing other lawyers and you're not sure you're getting the case. Um, if it's really worthwhile and depending the source of the case, many times I'm happy to do some initial investigation. If it's helping out a, a, a friend of a friend who is looking into a case and I can have my investigator pull a police report for them and no charge, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but generally, uh, you don't wanna exert yourself financially or work-wise too much unless you have a retainer. It also helps keep track of your caseload in your system uh, because if you're spending money, you should be recording that. So if you're sending for medical records or paying an investigator, you want to associate that with a file. You want to have that on your books as a disbursement. And you should only have cases on your books as disbursements that are actually active cases where you're representing people. So you want to make sure to do that. Um, it's two o'clock now. I'm going to continue to answer questions. Uh, so please feel free to stay with me. If not, I believe uh, for most of you by hanging in there with me for an hour, uh, you've done your job. Is that right, Michelle? And I want to thank you uh, for those of you who are bailing out now to go do something more exciting. I don't blame They're you. They're all running to go to the mentor ESQ and yes, download. No, you're all running to the website. Yeah, but so um, <laughs> just a couple of parting thoughts if you are leaving. Um, hopefully, you'll join me again uh, next month. Uh, if you're listening to this as an episode of The Mentor, check in the first Wednesday of every uh, month until July of 2021 for the live webinar. You will get emails for each of the parts coming forward with the topic to be covered, but it's going to go uh, chronologically and progressively until we end this thing in July. I will always be available. Uh, you can reach out to me anytime with questions that are not answered here or as a resource, as I've said before. Uh, so um, let's take a look and uh, see some of the questions here. Um, Thank you. Some people I see are putting in answers to other people's questions. Um, so someone's asking about, again, with the with a minor, uh, do you have to go to surrogate's court or the trial court um, when it's uh, a guardian ad litem? If there's a minor that's been appointed a guardian ad litem because there was a death in the family and they're involved, if there's any pending surrogate court matter going on in hand there, then you want to explore your option with the surrogate court that's already ongoing. Um, however, if there is a case pending uh, with the state or federal court, 
um, then you want to uh, make sure whoever's overseeing that case, whether it's Supreme Court or federal court or civil court, uh, that that judge oversees it. If the expenses are huge, um, then put them in. This person asked, you know, if you have like 17,000 in expenses, yeah, you may not want to waive those. Hopefully the case was substantial enough. You're getting a substantial fee. Uh, if, you're, if it's a million dollar case, you may want to waive the 17,000. If it's a $50,000 case, you probably may or may not, or a $300,000 case. So use your, your judgment, um, maybe cut the fat a little bit, try and limit your expenses because they are gonna be scrutinized by the court. So maybe remove a bunch, you can put them in there, but then next to that additional expense, say waived. Um, so they can see you're trying to you know, cut things down. Um, let's see, the website of my podcast. It should be, it's not above me. I think right here, thementoresq.com. Thank you for asking. Check it out. Let me know what you think. Andrew at thementoresq.com. You can email me. Um, do I have an estimated value for a MedMal case before accepting it? Great question. Uh, the answer is yes. Um, I won't take on a medical malpractice case uh, unless I think it's certainly into the six figures. Um, you know, preferably high six figures, but at least a low six figures. If you don't think it's going to be worth at least $100,000, um, I just, uh, economically, I don't think it'll make sense for the amount of time you're likely to spend on it and the cost of getting the experts involved. Uh, so that is my threshold. And again, I don't suggest you dabble in handling medical malpractice cases. That could really come back to bite you. Uh, if you don't know what you're doing, uh, you may be better off, at least at the outset, part, part, partnering up with a firm or straightly referring out of, to a firm like mine or another attorney that you have a relationship with or working with them to see how it goes. Uh, but you can get in big trouble with a medical malpractice case or a product liability case or a federal court case if you're not comfortable handling those. So if it's your first go around in any of those three, um, tread cautiously uh, and seek perhaps uh, to partner up or at least seek some pretty good guidance because uh, you don't want to commit malpractice or uh, really mess up somewhere. Um, someone filed a case against the city and no answer from them yet. Um, the I think there's a tolling that's going on right now, still, even with answers and with getting defaults. Uh, I moved for a default on a case against a private entity recently that I have a problem with because of some of the, uh, the executive orders. So just keep track of that. But if you're clear of any tolling or executive orders, then you make a motion for default. Um, practically, it's probably a little easier to uh, try and call the city, see if you can get through to somebody and say, hey, I don't want to have to go through making a motion just because um, I doubt you'll ever get a default judgment against the city. But, uh, you know, that's that's your option. Um, is there a separate form to give the other party an authorization for employment records? Uh, you could generally use the HIPAA form and just modify it. And that usually works pretty well. Um, someone's asking a question about bringing lawsuits with, uh, uh, if there's a case where someone's making a delivery for Amazon uh, by, or you know, UPS, someone's using their personal vehicle. Uh, that's a really good question. I'm seeing that myself, that people are rolling up in their Subaru hatchback and hopping out with the UPS jacket on uh, to give you a package. Um, again, 
most likely these people as delivering are independent contractors, but probably there's an arrangement uh, with the carrier that they're working for to provide insurance coverage uh, for any incident involving in the course of scope of their uh, delivery. So you'd get the registration, you'd send a claim letter. In the claim letter, you would certainly put in uh, our information uh, investigation reveals. Uh, this vehicle may have been operating on behalf of uh, United Parcel Service uh, or whatever other carrier. Uh, so please uh, pass our claim letter on to them or contact us to advise. Um, let's see. I think so far I'm hitting a lot of them. Some people are asking about a downloadable um, social services form, fillable form. I'm sorry, I don't have the answer to that. So I would suggest uh, just doing research online. Uh, there's a lot of stuff you'd be amazed that you can find uh, online. Um, someone was kind enough to uh, submit a link on here about SUM insurance programs. That's great. Uh, I'm a big believer in ADR and I'm always pushing it. And I also suggest that you you know, inform your clients about alternative dispute resolution um, early on at the case. Uh, let your clients know that you're always working to get their case resolved. And that doesn't mean you're going to do any shortcuts. Uh, that doesn't mean you're going to sell their case out as a plaintiff or as a defendant, uh, you know, sell out for too much. But look, litigants always want resolution and they want a good resolution. So as long as you let your client know that from the time you're working on their case before filing suit, through the process, up until picking a jury, even through until a jury renders a verdict, you're always trying to get their case resolved and get a good resolution. And one great way to do that is through mediation or a high-low arbitration. I'm a big believer in that, and I've effectively used it. And I think uh, a lot of people enjoy doing that. Uh, I'm seeing a, a big trend towards it on both sides of plaintiff and defense. I'm actually surprised. I have some colleagues on the defense uh, side that tell me they can't get plaintiffs to agree to do an arbitration or mediation, which is just really surprising to me. Um, crazy things happen. I don't care how good your case is. Uh, I've been practicing uh, long enough. I've tried a lot of cases. Uh, I've had a lot of success. I've had some miserable results uh, that still haunt me. And, uh, you know, you just don't know what a jury's going to do or what an appellate court's going to do. So if you can somehow get security uh, as well as a resolution through ADR, um, I highly recommend that you do so. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Someone's asking the length of the validity of a HIPAA authorization. So it's a couple of different things. Um, in the form itself, it'll ask for uh, how long uh, can they get the records. So you fill out the form uh, and uh, usually there's a parameter you give so that they can't request the records of your client going back to childhood. Um, you'll put dates in there. Sometimes you'll put till the end of litigation. Uh, that's not the best. I would put fixed dates, uh, but make them significant enough because uh, a plaintiff's back history and backstory is comes into question. Uh, so it's not fair to just give someone the last five months of medical records. Uh, they're certainly entitled to, you know, one to three years of medical records, I think is reasonable. Um, but as far as the validity of an actual HIPAA authorization signed and dated, 
uh, if it's an open-ended one. I think that there's an expiration to how long a HIPAA is valid. I don't know if it's actually in a statute. It may be by practice. It may be some hospitals or practices won't. They'll say, hey, man, this authorization is from six months ago. I'm going to, you know, our, our in-house requires that you give us a fresh authorization uh, before we'll submit it. So um, I think I pretty much uh, covered on everything uh, that's been asked. Um, oh, no. Do you keep time records, even though you're on a contingency fee? I don't. Um, it's a good question, especially in federal court, uh, because some cases uh, you can submit a fee request in federal court. Uh, and sometimes that could be better than a contingency fee. Some cases you handle, you're entitled to statutory fees um, or the other side to pay fees, depending on the nature of the litigation. So know what type of case you're involved in in your jurisdiction. And if there's any chance that your fees are going to be based on time, and that time may be more than your third, so to speak, from a contingency, then you should keep time. Uh, but generally, you don't really need to. And even if your uh, file gets taken over from you and you get into a fee dispute, um, you don't have to submit the hours, but you will have to recreate your file. Uh, and you'll do that by showing all your correspondence, all your pleadings, all the work you did. Uh, so there's other ways to do it. Uh, frankly, it's a real pain in the butt to keep track of your hours. That's one of the things people like about being on the plaintiff side and not the defense side is we don't have to keep track of our hours. So um, I've been practicing uh, for 20, I think I'm in my 26th year now. I've never kept track of my hours and it hasn't really affected me. Uh, but again, if you're in federal court and there's any doubt, you may wanna uh, just keep track of those just to be safe. Um, another HIPAA question, a lot of HIPAA questions. Um, do you need a power of attorney or a relative to sign the HIPAA on behalf of the minor? Yes. So when you have a HIPAA for minors records, you're going to usually have the parent sign it. Uh, that's who signs it and have them sign as parent of, uh, and that you shouldn't have uh, any problems with that. Um, someone's asking about MVAIC. That is, we all know as MIVIAC. Uh, well, it's probably MIVIAC, but I think we all call it MIVIAC. So, uh, MVAIC is when there's no insurance. In New York State, it's called the Motor Vehicle Accident Indemnification Company, Corporation. I don't know, maybe someone knows and can type it in, but it's a, it's a municipal entity that will provide the minimum amount of insurance coverage if there is zero coverage available in an accident, uh, which is 25,000 in New York for an injury, 50,000 if it's a death case. So if a client is injured and has no, none of their own insurance for SUM or UM, and if the vehicle that struck them has no insurance, then you can apply to the fund, MBAIC. And the question here is uh, what the time limit is. Uh, I'm not positive. I would do it within 30 days, uh, certainly within 30 days of having any type of confirmation of no coverage. Uh, you don't want any disclaimer based on timeliness. The easiest thing to do is just Google MVAIC uh, notice requirements and they'll tell you um, what happens. Um, someone's asking if when a minor turns 18, uh, do you have to amend the caption? I don't believe so. Uh, I haven't had to do that. Um, probably it's good practice. You know, it's pretty rare when we uh, have a situation where during the pendency of the case, uh, they go from being a minor to of age. 
because I mean, you're signing up the case probably when they're already 16 or 17. Most of our cases resolve within two to three years. Um, so usually by the time it gets a resolution, it's really not needed, but it should be easy enough to do if they become of age probably it is the best course and the proper course to amend it. And you could do that by stipulation uh, with your adversary. <laughs> Someone just commented, Miviac will never pay full value. Uh, that may be true. That may be true. Get what you get and don't be upset as they say. All right. Um, see what else we have going on here. Thank you to the couple hundred, 325 of you still hanging in there with me. I'm here. Let me see a uh, question. Jess, do you have to get the full policy limit from the defendant in order to bring a claim against the underinsured motorist policy? Yes, yes, yes. You cannot save even a penny off the policy. So for those of you unfamiliar with SUM and UM, uh, I'll talk about it just briefly. It's really, really important. You have to ask your client, if your client is a plaintiff, if they have any of their own SUM or UM coverage. And if they don't know, tell them to get, if they have a vehicle in the house. I've actually seen people that don't have vehicles but have gotten a, a policy to cover them because they're a pedestrian in the city all the time. But that's rare. Uh, but if they have any type of insurance policy, tell them to send it to you. Review the deck page for their auto policy, review their homeowner's policies, see if there's any coverage for an auto accident where there's no other coverage. And that's known as supplemental underinsured or uninsured motorist protection. Uninsured is when the vehicle's insurance coverage that caused the accident, injured your plaintiff, is low and your client has a policy in SUM or UM that's higher. Um, uninsured is when there is no insurance, like in a hit and run, uh, then you go to your client's SUM. In either situation, the idea is they're either underinsured or do not have insurance. So that means if they're underinsured, you have to take the entire policy from the primary tortfeasor. Otherwise, it, it technically does not kick in the SUM claim. Because even if you take a penny less, then how can you say they were underinsured? They still had enough. They even had another penny left over. That's in theory how it works. You have to get the whole policy. It actually helps with settlement sometimes because you know, you, maybe it's a, you have a two hundred, a $300,000 SUM and a 100 primary. You say, look, the case may only be worth 125, but I've got SUM. I can't take 99,000 from you. Normally I would, but I need the whole policy. Otherwise I'm committing malpractice. You got to give it to me. So that works a lot. Um, and you need written consent in New York state. You need written consent from the SUM carrier to settle the uh, underlying action. Okay, for its policy limits, you need to notify them of the tender offer for the policy, request written consent. You cannot send in releases until you have written consent, otherwise you've committed malpractice. Uh, and that is in, because you will not be able to then go uh, and pursue the SUM claim. And uh, the SUM carrier is not allowed to unreasonably withhold consent. Uh, so if a certain period of time goes by, uh, then it's deemed waived. So you just make sure you do a proper paper trail on that. Um, but SUM uh, is a whole nother topic. Maybe I'll do a whole separate CLE on that. Put in the comments if that's something you all would like to have uh, me do a uh, topic or uh, let me know if you'd like an episode, a uh, podcast episode. I'll be happy to do one on SUM and UM uh, on on how to handle those, when it kicks in, how to litigate those. In New York State, um, you have to litigate those by mandatory arbitration. Um, in other states, you actually commence a legal action against the insurance company. Um, 
Someone's asking about a jet ski accident. Uh, what policy, policy should be looked at? Uh, is there underinsured? Can you go after others? In answer to that question and other questions such as like ATVs or other motorized vehicles that may not fall into the classic category of automobile or boat, um, you are just going to ask your client and the tortfeasor uh, for all applicable insurance policies. My personal practice and our firm's practice is in any case where it appears there's not significant insurance from the tortfeasor, from the potential defendant, we say, I wanna see every one of your insurance policies, every auto policy, your homeowners, your renters. Do you have a policy through work that may cover you? You wanna look at everyone um, because you don't know what covers what. Um, typically, uh, marine boats, marine craft have their own policies. Um, cars will have their own. Uh, premises will have their own homeowners, renters. Um, if you didn't know this, usually if you're involved in a bicycle accident and you injure someone or if someone is operating a bicycle and strikes you as a pedestrian, that is generally actually covered by uh, the bicycle operator's homeowner's policy. So you'll find out more when you get into it, but when in doubt, look for you know every policy and read through it. Sometimes you get lucky uh, and you can uh, discover coverage somewhere. Um, yeah, someone's saying that it would be good to have an SUM ID, uh, uh, episode. So I'm definitely going to do that. So tune in for that. We'll do that as, a, as another uh, episode podcast jointly with the Academy. Michelle likes it. Awesome. Getting the thumbs up. Michelle's the boss. She says it's a go. It's a go. Um, all right, folks. Got a few more minutes. Uh, I'm only allowed to take up, I think, Michelle's time till 2.30. So let them fly uh, if you're still here. Uh, and you want me to answer any questions that I have not addressed, I'm happy to do that for you. Um, all right. I'm not, oh, just in case. All right. Cases against the city and other public authorities, how do I handle those? That's a, a loaded question. Um, I handle them with caution. Uh, I know that I'm not going to get as much money as I'm likely to get from a private insurance company. Uh, I know that I'm probably not going to get the attention to the case uh, that I would get from a private carrier. Uh, I know that I'm going to have to make a lot of motions probably and be prepared for that. I know that I'll have to be aggressive in staying on top of discovery issues and making motions and pushing to try and move the case. I know that it will take a lot longer to get resolved uh, because, you know, they have so many cases that uh, to get a trial, uh, even pre-pandemic time. So uh, they're tough. They're tough cases. You got to be careful with your notice of claim uh, requirement, the limited statute limitation requirement. Uh, sometimes a case will come to you and you have to do late notices of claim, which are really tough to, to be successful with. So, you know, you, you approach them with caution, but if it's warranted, then you, you look at it. I mean, the one thing they have, uh, you may not have much anymore. They used to have deep pockets. So when we would have an automobile case with a minimum policy and there's potentially a road defect or a tree hanging over, you know, you're always good practices to look into that because you would want to bring the city in uh, for coverage. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Um, someone's asked me a question about demanding a settlement from a New Jersey policy that won't disclose the limits. I can't help you there. I just don't know. I don't handle New Jersey cases. If I do, I'm brought in pro hoc vice and I ask my local counsel uh, for things like that. 
the Port Authority against New York and New Jersey. Um, we've, we've handled cases against them, uh, some substantial successful ones, uh, some stemming from the uh, World Trade Center blast. Um, and, uh, you know, you sue them, there's a way to serve and sue the Port Authority. Um, they usually bring in private firms. They have separate types of coverage. Um, so it's a little different than dealing with the, the city. Um, and you generally litigate those like usual cases. Uh, you just need to look into it and make sure that you name them and plead everything uh, properly in the case. Uh, but if it's a good case, um, you know, those are usually uh, pretty decent cases uh, to pursue with the Port Authority. Um, any luck getting video from a building that is not a tortfeasor? Uh, hey, Bob, thanks for uh, reaching out to me. Nice to uh, see you virtually. Um, it's tough. We get it. You know, what'll happen is our investigators, we, we recently had a case where um, we know there was footage from the building. Our client fell right in front of the building. And uh, we know the building had cameras on it. And we know across the street, the building had a camera. And uh, the investigator reached out to the building. Um, sometimes you get a friendly person who's happy to give it to you. More likely than not, they get a little gun shy and they'll say that um, they need to uh, put it through their counsel or their risk management or the managing agent needs to, you know, check it out. They're always get a little nervous, um, but we've gotten it. Uh, we've gotten it. So you guess you just got to try it. I recommend using an investigator, have the investigator really follow up. If they're not the tortfeasor, you've got a shot at getting the video footage. Sometimes they'll say, you know, we just need a subpoena to cover our butt. So you may want to put it into suit and uh, send a subpoena. Um, you may send a letter so you can work with it. But uh, the case I mentioned before where uh, the carrier was basically taking a no pay in a death case, when we got the video, it flipped the script and uh, we got a very good <laughs> settlement as a result of it because, you know, the video is just, it's so key. It's really amazing to me as practitioners, you know, we all come in after the fact and we see, you know, we hear what witnesses say and we see the police report and we hear testimony. And then when you get a videotape that's just completely different than what your client may have said or what the, your adversary's witness may have said, it's stunning how that happens. It happens a lot. So believe me, no matter how good you think your case is or bad it is, it certainly may not be what it really was. Uh, that's why as advocates, we do the best we can to work with the materials uh, that we have. Um, all right, getting close. Uh, the question in being asked is uh, notice of claim against the Port Authority. Yes, I believe they do require notice of claim. Uh, so I would just look that up um, and see. And then um, someone's asking about, you know, giving an additional benefit of giving um, copies of your correspondence to your client. It's sort of a malpractice prevention tool, um, you know, in case you, you have failure with electronic storage and, and all of that. So um, look, I think it's, it's good practice for communication. Uh, it's really not gonna make a difference if a malpractice claim is brought against you, you. You can't rely on your client to keep copies of your records for your record keeping. You need to have backups, you need to have uh, all of your stuff stored on a server. You need to have all of your server daily uploaded to a cloud backup storage. It's not that expensive. I believe it's malpractice if you do not do that. Um, if you're still old school with paper files, you are behind the times, my friends. You need to um, scan everything. You need to get everything on a computer. 
You need to get everything up on a cloud. It's very safe. They're password protected. They back up. Uh, if your server crashes, you can't get access to your building. Uh, there's a brownout and everything fries your servers. Um, you put up a new computer. You have your IT team downloaded. Boom. It's all back there. I have found this even helpful for my staff when someone's accidentally deleted it's something they've been working really hard on for a while, like a brief or a motion, and then they can't find it anywhere, uh, then at least uh, we can get the days back up from before downloaded. So we only lose from that day, but we don't lose the, the, all the work that went into it uh, up until the day before. Um, someone's asking about any solid New York template subpoena language uh, for video footage. I don't. Um, I can do that. If someone wants to, uh, you know, email me separately, I'll try and dig up a sample subpoena I've used for that if I have one. Otherwise, just, you know, you can, you'd be amazing what kind of forms you could find online uh, with the court system, with OCA, with just Googling forms. And if you just type into Google, you know, New York State subpoena uh, form for video, you'd be amazed with the type of stuff uh, that you, that you uh, can come up with. Um, all right, last question I'm gonna take is for a defense colleague, case where you settled the plaintiff, but the co-defendants haven't settled with the plaintiff. What is the benefit of keeping me in the case and providing me with a release? So there probably is not a benefit. Um, I don't do defense work, but I do run into situations a lot where I've got multiple defendants and I'm talking to one of the defense counsel uh, and they're saying, look, I'm happy to give you to get out of this case, uh, but you got to get me released from this other co-defendant. They've got cost claims against me. And I say, hey, that's not my problem. I appreciate that. But if you want to get out, I'll let you out. If, you know, and I think it's enough that if I'm letting you out uh, and settling the case, uh, you should be happy with it. Um, there are definitely different issues that go into, you know, contribution um, and uh, other things that will come up on the defense side, as well as contractual or common law indemnification. So that's really where you want to do your homework. I'm just not the right person to answer that question for you. Um, our general practice is we usually don't just let one tortfeasor out. Uh, we usually try to settle all the cases at the same time. Uh, that's usually the cleanest way to do it. So I encourage you to try and do that. So with that, I'm going to thank you all very much. Uh, we still have about 230 people that hung in here for the last half hour. Very cool. Uh, it was an honor to spend this hour and a half with you. Uh, please, please, please. Uh, come back for part two. We're going to continue this journey together. We got six more parts to get through. Uh, they'll be smooth and easy. I promise I'll give you some more uh, materials to use in your case. Uh, please check out the podcast. Let me know what you think and, um, and reach out to me anytime if I can help. Thanks so much. You can register for the next one. Um, it's available online on our site, trialacademy.org. So you can go um, and find the next one and sign up. I forget the exact date, but it's whatever the first Wednesday of whatever the first Wednesday of February is. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. This was lovely. I'm very excited for the next six parts. Um, and um, I just in case anybody's worried, I already emailed Andrew about picking a date for the SUM UM.
Uh, yeah, that, we'll, we'll definitely get that going. And for those of you listening uh, in your headphones, in your car, at your desk, or at home to the podcast, uh, thank you as always for listening to the podcast. As I say at the end of each episode, uh, please share with your friends, colleagues, and classmates. Please like it on social media if you do. And as always, I'm always uh, excited to work and connect with other lawyers. So reach out to me for any reason anytime. Uh, I'm looking for other lawyers to refer cases to, to work with on new cases, to accept referrals, to workshop cases. It's a really great part about what we do uh, throughout the nation and not just the state or city as lawyers is being here to help each other out. So help me continue that mission. Thank you so much. Thank you.